Very good, very good. Let's pray, and let's get started. Any pertinent prayer requests that we need to pray for today? Felix, you got any? You doing all right? You sure? Okay, it's time to go before the Lord. It's time to get honest. Uh, nobody has a prayer, re prayer request they want me to pray for? Yes, ma'am. For my daughter. Okay. Salvation. Okay. All right. Pray for her. Amen. Anybody else? You got a prayer request? Pastor Chris? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Karen and Asher both have like some sort of virus. That seems like they both got... So they're both in the house. Oh, you got them quarantined together. Yeah, they're quarantined away. <laughs> so just pray that it doesn't spread to the other kids, you know, somehow. And, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Amen. Let's pray for those kids. Let's pray for your daughter, and let's pray for our time. Well, Father, we uh, come before you today. Thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day that you have made. We know that it's hot outside, and it's, it's uh, just... A beautiful day, Lord. Thank you for uh, giving us life and breath and everything, giving us the uh, strength and the, Father, giving us the vitality to get up another morning and to wake up another day and to serve you, to know you, and to walk with you, Lord. And that's what we want for our lives, Lord. We do want for you to be the center, the focus, the heartbeat of our life and draw us into a closer relationship with you lord as the time draws near as the as the um lord as the as the day draws near and near lord help us to stimulate one another for love and good works lord help our lives to reflect the sobriety of what it means to know christ and to and to and to make you known to be dominated by the love of christ that compels us in every way to share christ with the lost father we do pray for these requests for martha's um or for Martha, for uh, Paula's daughter. Lord, I pray for her that you would please save her, bring her soundly to salvation. Lord, work in her, in her heart, work in her life, in her mind. I pray that all of the words that, she's, that she hears here, none of it would go in vain and that you would do your, a great work through a great salvific work, God. And uh, Father, we pray for these little babies, Lord, for Asher, for Cannon. Lord, we pray that you would please restore them to health. Lord, keep them from... Uh, uh, getting worse, uh, we pray that even today, Lord, that whatever they have would begin to go away, that you would restore their little bodies, Lord. And uh, bless our time, Father. Bless us as a church as we gather, Lord, in your name. We pray that you bless our, our assembly. We pray that you'd be pleased with our worship, Father. We ask your help. Father, we ask your assistance. We ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate our heart, our mind, to bring us into a greater knowledge, a greater understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, we are coming upon a different subject now of systematic theology, which is the doctrine of God. Uh, some theologians used to refer this, uh, to refer to this as theology proper. Theology proper, because it begins with the right thing, with the right focus, the right purpose, the principal doctrine of all of theology, which is God himself. Because what is theology after all? What does the word theology mean? The study of God. Theos Lagos. God and word. And where we get our word study. So, the study of God. And that's really what 
where we have to begin. So I kind of want to map out the field and where we're going to go. Uh, basically, I try to boil our study of God, the doctrine of God, down to the simplest sort of categories that I could. And number one is um, we'll study um, we'll study who God is. Okay, who God is, and then um, uh, well, make sure I get this right. Yeah, who God is, and that's right, what God does. That's sort of the two ways that we're going to look at the doctrine of God, because we have to begin with who God is, because we have to understand his nature, we have to understand his character, we have to understand his attributes. All of those things are very important for our study of God, okay? And, but then we, have to, we also have to know what he does, what does God do in providence? What does God do in creation? What does God do in his eternal divine decrees? The decrees of God, the things, in other words, the purpose of God, what he has purposed. And so before we get to the study of all of these things, who God is, theology proper, and the doctrine of God, it assumes that we know the existence of God, right? The existence of God. So let's begin with that. How do we know that God exists? How do we, see, this is the thing, guys. If God does not exist, then waking up this morning, coming to this church, sitting in this room, listening to me of all people speak, is really an exercise in futility. Are we, like Carl Sagan said so long ago, all alone in the world? We're all alone and our lives have no transcendent value, no transcendent meaning, no transcendent purpose? If that's the case, I mean, that really should affect the way that you live. I mean, if you really have no purpose, if God doesn't exist, then you are left to try to search out what purpose beyond myself do I have? Or does my life literally consist of eating cornflakes, you know, brushing my teeth, combing my hair, tying my shoes, going to work, making a little money, and then dying and ceasing to exist? So that, you know, you've seen the bumper sticker, right? Whoever accumulates the most toys wins, right? It's like you really, because if, if your life is, you know, has no, no, no connection to the existence of God, then your life is really bound to this material universe, and that's it. That is as far as your life goes. And if that's the truth, well, then it makes sense that you live for material things. You know, Madonna, a material girl. That's going way back. That's how long it's been since I've tuned into MTV. <clears throat> She's a material girl, all right, because she lives for nothing but materialism because she doesn't understand that she is created in the image of God and that she's God's creature and that she has transcendent meaning and purpose. So there's really, when you think about the existence of God, and we'll get to the proof of God's existence, okay? But for now, let's just assume the existence of God, as we all do anyway. But um, let's, let's say that when we're talking about existence, okay, you're talking about existence, you're talking about a field of philosophy known as 
metaphysics. Metaphysics is concerned with what is real. What is real. That's a really easy way to sum up metaphysics, but it goes beyond the physical world. It goes beyond sensory experiences. It's talking about what is conceptual, what is epistemological, what is, what is the theory of knowledge. And so it brings up the whole question, how do you know what you know? How do you know anything for certain? I know a lot of you have seen Saiten Bruggenkate. He's got a wonderful name, doesn't he? His, his whole syllogism, you know, could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? And if you could be wrong about everything that you claim to know, it follows that you don't know anything at all. And that's right. That's true. We'll, we'll get into that. But, so when we're talking about this, we're also talking about how we view the world. What, how we think of the world. And so we quickly get into the conflict of worldviews, right? And there's really only two ways of looking at the world. And let's say that this represents autonomous thought. Autonomous thought. What does autonomous thinking mean? What does that mean? Anyone? Anyone? It's like alone, thinking based on your own. Yeah. Autonomous, autonomy, right? The word autonomy means self-governing. It means that you are an end of yourself. So autonomous thinking means thinking that arises solely on the basis of yourself, right? And um, so, so you either have autonomous type thinking or you have something else. And for us, the option to autonomous thinking is biblical thought or biblical thinking. Okay? There's other ways to phrase this, but I thought you could have easily said Christian thinking. But even more, right? Christians can make bad thoughts. So I just thought it'd be better if we said biblical thoughts, right? Because the Bible doesn't have bad thoughts, but Christians can, right? So under this dichotomy that the whole world, by the way, operates under this scheme, you either have thoughts that follow after yourself, your own autonomy, your own self-governing, um, the fact that you are the measure of all things, which is essentially what's known as what? Humanism. Humanism. If you go online and, oh, if you go online and you read the Humanist Manifesto, for example, they say, man is an end to himself. He needs no gods. He needs no spirits. He needs no genies. He needs no superstitions. He needs no religion. He needs no spirits. Nothing. That's what they say. That's what they pledge to as humanists, that man is the measure of all things. You have everything within yourself that you need. All the resources that you're ever going to need in this life, you can find that within yourself. Okay? And um, you don't need any divine revelation because you have all the wisdom you're ever going to need. You don't need any supernatural uh, belief system because you live in a material world. You live in a universe that's closed. It's a closed system. There's no divine influence whatsoever. And so there is no need for the divine. You are divine. I mean, I've heard humanists say that, you know. Um, but um, let's think a little bit more about this, okay? Under, under this type of thinking, there are, um, there are only two ways to look at this. Either here, you're going to have... Uh, relativism or you're going to have 
absolutes. Now, what areas is relativism going to affect in an autonomous thinking mind? What area is that going to affect? What is relative in this worldview? What is it? Morality. Okay. Morality, right? What else? The difference between good and evil. Morality. Pretty much the same thing. Anything else? What else is relative in a in a an autonomous autonomous worldview, a relativistic worldview? What else is relative? Yes, of course. Morality is relative, right? There's no ultimate good or evil because there's no transcendent values of any kind. So what else is relative in... Huh? God. God, well, that would boil down... Now you're getting to a belief, right? right. And what they believe. So, you say sexuality? Morality. Same thing, right? I want to say everything. That's right. Sure, it is everything, right? So I would say morals are definitely affected by that. How about this? How about their reason? Right? Relativistic reason. Right? So do you have the ability to know right from wrong? Do you have the ability to know truth from error? How do you know, in an autonomous worldview, how do you know that you're not in the matrix? How do you know that you're not really right now in a psychiatric ward in a padded room with a needle in your back and you're hallucinating that you're in Sunday school? <laughs> right? How do you know? For it's all relative to what you think. What's that? It's all relative to what because you Because it's think. all relative. You use yourself as the base. That's right. That's right. So there's no way almost to escape the equation, right? Um, so morals are relative. Reason is relative. Yes, that's an R. Pretty sad, R. What else is relative under this system? How about this? I, a lot of people don't think about this, okay? What about that? Beauty. It, in more sophisticated terms, aesthetics. Ethics, epistemology, aesthetics. If all things are relative, then beauty has no meaning. And, nothing, and, and we can't know what beauty is. I've often told agnostics or relativists, if they believe in the relativism of beauty, of course, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So it's okay for me to walk around with a picture of your baby and a bottle of urine and put it out in the public for everyone to see? How about your mother? You see, there comes a point where certain things are ugly in it of themselves. And we can use far worse combinations until we get the point, right? That certain things are absolutely aesthetically repugnant. Just like universally a rose is beautiful. You, don't, you can go to any culture around the world and give people two options of, of, of obvious beauty and obvious grotesque, you know, uh, how do, what's the word? Something that's ugly. And you don't need to be in a certain culture for someone to say, this is beautiful and this is ugly. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, it's just axiomatic. But in relativistic thinking, nothing is beautiful. So what did these relativistic artists that put their paintings, you know, up in the um, 
some of the most expensive art galleries in the world, they sell art and they have pictures of Jesus in a bottle of urine. They have, they have, they draw things made out of feces and they, they call it art. I know that's kind of disturbing today on a Sunday afternoon, but, but I'm just trying to show you this is where relativistic thought leads. And culturally speaking, it always had a major bearing on society and what it deemed to be beautiful. Do you know that you, if you were alive in the time of Jesus, if you were on Paul's missionary journeys, you would walk around in, the Ro in Rome in public and you would be bombarded with public images of pornography constantly. Murals, I've seen them. Murals, statues, grotesque immorality paraded publicly and openly. Uh, I remember I was so shocked. I was on a missions trip to, to Jerusalem. We were going to Israel. We had a layover in London, and I couldn't believe it. In London, in England, they have nudity on their commercials, regular prime time, just nudity, flat out nudity, unapologetic. And uh, I remember there was a uh, there was a somebody from. Um, from, from the government there that was talking about this, said, we're not afraid of the beauty of human sexuality. We're, we're not afraid of that here like you are in the West. No, what you're saying is that you're a relativist, <laughs> right? And that you have no bounds. Your boundaries of your ethical standards have affected your aesthetics. And now you think it's okay to put pornographic material in, the, in, in front of children that could easily access it. See, this is, this is your worldview affecting every single part of who you are. And this is all because of relativistic thought. Now, can you know truth in this system? Ultimate, absolute truth. No, you can't. And so what ends up happening to a relativist is that, and we can go on and on, we can talk about the laws of logic, we can talk about mathematics, we can talk about all of those sciences that we just don't know the truth about when it comes to this system. And so what ends up happening is philosophically you end up going into what is known as an infinite regress. An infinite regress, right? It's basically saying that you know something on the basis of something else. Okay, let's use size thing, A because of B, B because of C, C because of D. You see what's going on here? Well, how do you know you exist? What do you mean I'm standing here? Well, how do you know you're standing here? What do you mean? Because I can see my feet. How do you know you can see your feet? Because my eyes are registering it to my brain. How do you know your brain is sense detecting that you know, experience correctly? Because the synapses in my brain are firing off and the chemical reaction is producing the, the imagery that my feet are here. How do you know the synapses in your brain are reliable? Well, because, you know, and, and it just goes on and on and on and on to the point of infinite regress, where it boils down to one person's opinion of reality versus another. And at the end of the day, you don't have the ability to know truth. That's what's so important about autonomous thinking versus biblical absolutes. What does this have to do with the doctrine of God? If God does not exist, this is all that we have. This is all that we have. So we have an infinite regression. So uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers come along, 
like Parmenides and Heraclitus, they come along and they debate and they say, oh, wait a minute, the universe is one. The other one says, no, wait a minute, the universe is, is at atomistic. It is, a, it, is, it, is, it is impossible that it is one. It is diverse and it cannot be otherwise. And then another philosopher, let's say like Plato comes in and says, no, the whole universe, the whole realm of reality is made out of water. That is the single principle of all reality. And somebody else comes along and says, no, wait a minute. No, the single principle of all existence is fire. And so what do you have is you have a history of philosophic thoughts where man, according to the Bible, let's just look there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a verse that I've brought up to you over and over again. But what ends up happening? This is what happens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, Paul says... Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This has everything to do with what we're talking about because Paul will go on to talk about that both Jewish thought and Greek thought, we're talking about Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, the, Greeks, uh, uh, the Greek you know, philosophers, they, they did not ever, ever come to know God. <laughs> you know, Matter of fact, Plato said it is impossible to know God. Uh, they believe, they're sure, there is a being up there, nobody knows him, he's an impersonal being. Plato is famous for saying, Man and God, never the two shall meet. In other words, for Plato, it was inconceivable that man can ever come to know truth in an absolute form. It's impossible because we are finite. We are limited. And we all, the best we can do is talk about and describe, that's where he gets into the whole theory of accidents and he can describe descriptions of what is, but he can never really tell you what it is. You see that? So, without God, this is all that's left. That's it. And so, if there is nothing but an infinite regress of ideas where your thoughts ultimately are baseless and there is no way to know truth for certain, then what is left here is that there is no ultimate authority. There is no ultimate morality. There is no ultimate truth. And there is no ultimate meaning. And why do you think people that adopt relativistic thought, why do you think they so easily give their whole soul away? I mean, I remember talking to a guy. I'll never forget this conversation. I was at UCLA with Ray Comfort. And I was talking to a, a logician that told me he had spent $160,000 to get his degree in logic. And his Logic, because it was relativistic and followed autonomous thinking, was such, and he was totally, totally honest about this, that because of relativism, there was no ultimate morality. He went so far as to say, molesting children is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with pedophilia. See, this is what happens in autonomous thinking. The minute you abandon the biblical worldview, the minute you abandon the absolute authority of God's word and God himself, 
then man is left to his own devices. You want a, a biblical, this is why I like the Bible. Never, never forget this principle, you guys. Never forget this principle. Any problem that we're facing today in society, in church, in culture, whatever, you can always know that it's already in here. <laughs> Nothing is new under the sun, right? So if you want to see what relativistic type thinking looks like, read the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, the slogan of the book of Judges is this. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that just describe American culture and really Western thought? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? So the homosexual party will say, hey, what's wrong with two people who love one another? What's wrong if they want to get married? And so if we're smart, biblical thought would say, why stop at the number two? Who says two people that love one another? Why not 50 people? <laughs> Are we going to start allowing mass marriages? Uh, and this is real, right? This is not theory. This is not just me making up some exaggeration for the sake of, you know, getting a rise out of you guys. It's the truth. It's what's going on in Massachusetts. Just several weeks ago, three women decided to get married. One of them was artificially inseminated, and she is now getting ready to have a baby. So there it is. Three women now saying exactly what two women used to say. Hey, if we love each other, who, who are you, you bigot, to discriminate against us loving one another? Well, wait a second. In the same breath, you know, you know, this you could go up to any gay couple and say, who stops at the number two? Who who are you to tell the three women that they can't love one another? And then who are the three women who tells the lady in the UK who this year married her dog and had a legal ceremony marrying her little chihuahua, dressed them up like a little tuxedo and all that. I mean, it's laughable, but it's lamentable, really, right? This is the byproduct of autonomous thinking. This is what happens when you deny the existence, not of God. Plenty of people believe in God. I'm sure if you ask, I mean, right now, something that's a hot controversy in the church is this whole idea of people saying, I am Christian and I am gay. I'm sure if you ask enough gay couples around the world getting married, they believe in God. They, they still want a priest. Well, they want a liberal one, right? <laughs> they want a liberal pastor, a liberal priest to come in and, and marry them in the name of God. See, they want to evoke that God is on their side. It's very important because if, if it becomes, hey, it's my God-given right to be married to 20 people if I want to, that, that takes it to a whole other level. But that's exactly what we're facing, guys, in our society, in our own time. We're seeing, you know, I preach about this all the time at UNT. We are, we, we've sown to postmodernism enough in our own history. I mean, I think sometimes we think we're detached, right, from our history. But the 60s, the sexual revolution, all of that, all that, that whole thing that happened, we are still reaping the whirlwind of that. And it's not going away. If anything, it's getting worse. You know what I mean? Um... Any questions or thoughts? I feel like I'm just going off up here. I mean, it's fun, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts. I mean, do you see how important this is? That autonomous thinking 
leads you exactly to that. To that, you are on your own. Your thoughts. You're right. You want to be autonomous. You're on your own. And what's the first example of autonomous thought? In the garden. What happened in the garden? Well, Eve took it upon herself to reason based on her own standard of thinking instead of submitting to the Word of God. It's all downhill from there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, we can either, in biblical thought, we can either follow the thoughts of God after Him, or we have to think the th our thoughts according to our own self. We, we follow the pattern of our own thinking. But when you follow the pattern of your own thinking, you go right back to the garden and you're in the same exact situation as Eve was. She has a decision there before her. Is she going to listen to the serpent, make her own up, make her own mind up? Is she going to follow the dictates of her own will and the dictates of her own mind? Or is she going to trust in the revelation that God gave her? If you eat of that fruit, you will die, right? Well, guess what? She tried autonomous thinking. She tried it. She just, she ventured out, out on the limb, and the limb snapped. And here we are today with a whole world immersed in relativistic thought. So that's what's going on now with autonomous thinking. You have an infinite regression where you can't know anything for certain. You have a complete abandonment of absolute authority, so there is no absolute authority. And, the, and because of that, man is, if you turn to Romans, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, man is self-deceived. He is self-deceived. Uh, this is probably the worst, I would say, this is probably the worst fruit of autonomous thought. Self-deception. Look at uh, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature and the gospel. No, that's not in there, right? In other words, this type of knowledge of God is limited it does not extend to special revelation. It doesn't lead to salvation. But nevertheless, God is knowable, and certain things about God can be known. And it says they have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So why are they without excuse? Well, because it says in verse 18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, right? I did it. I did it for many years before I was a Christian. Put God out of my mind, out of my thinking. I don't want to think about it, right? I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> and like the Israelites said, I will not have this man to rule over us, right? I don't want God ruling over me right now while I'm engaged in my, my lifestyle, okay? So what have, I, what have I done there? I've suppressed the truth. Right? I've suppressed it, but have I eliminated it? No. Think of a think of a a bouncing ball, like the kind that you buy at Walmart. Doing, doing, doing. Right? <laughs> They're so annoying, right? <laughs> Kids love to just go crazy with them. At least they used to back in my now they're pulling off iPods and 
If you throw that ball into the pool, can you submerge it? Of course you can, right? You have to work at it, right? You're slipping and sliding. Kids like to make a game out of that. But you can submerge the ball under the water so that you don't see the ball anymore. But guess what? You are still in contact with the ball. It's the same thing here, right? You can suppress God's truth as much as you want, but guess what? At the end of the day, you are still in contact with the truth of God. Right? And this is what you know, heavy-duty philosophers say. You know, atheism presupposes theism. In order to deny God, you first have to believe in a God to deny. And so the opposite of all of that is that God does exist, is that there is absolute truth, and because there is absolute truth, like we said, guess what? There is absolute morality. Morality. There is absolute uh, meaning. Let's say meaning. Right? Meaning, that's what we used for reason. And there is beauty. There are such things as aesthetics, biblical aesthetics, a theology of beauty, a theology of aesthetics. God is a God of order. God is a God of beauty. I mean, heaven is described as being unspeakably beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful. I was thinking about this. You guys see the Hobbit movie? No? Come on, what's wrong with you guys? Okay, the new Hobbit movie... It's so fascinating to me, okay? Because sometimes I wish I was a hobbit. You know, be, be honest, the inner hobbit comes out, you know? I'd like to be in one of those hobbit holes studying. Okay, anyway. I know it's kind of childish, but Jesus said, unless you become like a little... Anyway. Uh, but they find this stone in the wall, in the, in the cave, called the Arkenstone. And it shows all these beautiful stones. Beautiful. And then it gets to the Arkenstone, and the Arkenstone is just brilliant beyond belief. It outshines all the other stones, right? And I thought, and then they bring it out, and they have all these little stones, you know? And I thought, you know what? In the Bible, it says that the whole sea will be made out of glass. It will be a transparency like jasper. It's going to be, it's gonna be un, unbelievable. I mean, we, you know, girls go crazy because they get a diamond. You know, a guy gives them a... <laughs> God is going to make a world out of diamonds and jewels and streets of gold. Not just any kind of gold. What kind of gold? Transparent. Transparent gold. Gold so fine you can see through it. We can't even fathom what God is going to make. God is into beautiful things, brothers and sisters. He cares about what is beautiful and what is ugly. The Jews thought the art of the pagans was grotesque despicable and abominable because there is such a thing as the profane in God's eyes. Certain things are just profane in it of themselves. You see? Um, so, there is all this. So, what is the difference between an infinite regression? The difference between an infinite regress is... Anybody know it? Say it. You're saying you have a starting point with... Theology, Correct. So instead of an infinite regress, what would you say? We have an infinite authority. Infinite authority. Uh, how about how about an infinite reference point? Right. We have a point of reference. 
we have a point that you can't go any further back from that, right? You don't go any further back than thus saith the Lord. It doesn't, go, it doesn't get any more authoritative than that. Eve could not have appealed to some other word. It wasn't, the Lord told me not to eat, and on top of that, or prior to that, right? Or aside for that, or in addition to that, no. When you're talking about absolute authority, an infinite reference point, there is only one way to have an infinite reference point of knowledge, and that is if you have an infinite being that has all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. This is, the, this is why God can tell us things for certain. Because for an omniscient God, all of the facts are in. He doesn't learn passively. He's not gaining information. He's not learning about future events or possible events. He's not worried about, oh no, how's this world going to end? God knows exactly what he's doing. He's absolutely in control. All of, all of existence follows his plan. He has a plan. That's, a, that's another thing, you guys. If autonomous thought is true and a meaning is obliterated, why is, that, why is that a problem? It is a problem because it destroys God's plan. If what, you know, this is a, one of the things I asked about, you know, with the laws of thermodynamics with Jason at the event that we had, is because some people are trying to assert now that the universe has always existed and that it is eternal. What's wrong with that? Why can't the universe be eternal? It defies the laws of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. Because God says it wasn't. Okay. Right? What's that? I said because God says it wasn't. That's right. That's right. But there's implications. There's implications to that. If the universe is eternal and it just goes on and on and on and on and on, what does that take away from the biblical worldview? What does it, it take away? What's that? It had a beginning. It takes away that it had a beginning and what else? Yeah. And that it has an end. That it has a goal. There is this Greek word here, telos. This Greek word here, telos. Telos means goal, purpose, a design, an end, right? The Bible says that God is moving everything to a great end, to a great climax in human history. But if you can adopt the notion that it's possible that the universe has always been and always will be and that that's all that there is, well, it destroys God's purposes. It destroys the linear aspect of life, the fact that God has a plan and there's a progression and that history is not just a mindless, you know, random succession of events. One after another, case sera, sera, what has been will always be. No, 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 no. There, there, is, a, there is a goal. There is a, there is a design. There is a purpose. History is linear. History does have a climax. God is bringing everything to a great end one day. And uh, I know it's hard because you go into this culture, you go into the popular opinion today, and 
biblical beliefs are mocked and we're made to be we're made out to be dinosaurs in our thinking and archaic and you're ridiculed as believing in a myth and a in a lie and a story and a fairy tale but just remember remember the alternative and push the alternative anytime anybody ever ridicules your biblical belief system just tell them to describe their system of belief for a little bit and then continue to Push that envelope a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Push the antithesis, as Greg Bonson used to say. Show them what, what, what the consequences are if you deny ultimate meaning, ultimate truth, ultimate morality, right? There are dire consequences to that. So any questions about anything so far? We've got about 10 minutes, and I've gone through one page of notes. I got four more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so how do we prove God's existence? How do we prove God's existence? Well, it's almost like, it's almost like we don't prove God's existence, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't prove God's existence to anybody. And that's what I tell people in evangelism. Yeah? What's that? Oh, they already know That's right. They already know that He exists based on the authority of God's Word, Romans chapter 1. So we can right? already operate in that presupposition. Yeah. We don't even need do that and get into their court yeah. and try to defend who God is. They already know, so we can already speak on that authority. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the most powerful things I heard is, you know, somebody asks you, you know, why do you believe in God for the same reason you do? <laughs> God has shown it to me just like he showed it to you. I either believe the Bible or I don't, right? And so I believe that when the person, oh, I don't believe, I'm an atheist, get all mad, right? Yeah, I either believe you or I believe what the Bible says that says that you are actually under self-deception when you say that, right? It's, 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 uh, I've heard it related to the fact like a, like a proud mom that doesn't want to ever admit her, her child can do anything wrong, right? I know we don't have any in here, but, <laughs> but it's, like your, it's like your child, you know, is in the backyard playing, you know, baseball and hits the ball and busts the, windows, the, the, the neighbor's window out, right? Neighbor comes over and says... You know, you see what your son or your daughter did? And you say, well, my child will never do something like that. My child would never do something like that, right? It's not so much that you've articulated something of the quality of the child, but that you believe that you cannot believe that your child would do something like that. It's like somebody saying, I don't believe in the existence of God. It's not that they've said something intelligent about the non-existence of God. What they're saying is they're giving you their conviction that they do not believe that God exists. But it says nothing about the fact of the matter, right? The ball is in the house. The bat is in his hand. He did it, right? In the same way, God has shown it to them. God has imparted to them an innate knowledge of his existence. And, um, and so maybe we can read uh, John Calvin. John Calvin says this, <clears throat> that there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity we hold to be beyond dispute since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. 
the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. That's exactly right. This is why, you know, in evangelism, a lot of times I like to say, your conscience on the day of judgment will agree with God's verdict. It will agree 100%. You always knew there was a God. In your heart of hearts, you knew it, and you feared, and you trembled. And let me give you a more practical example of the paper-thin commitment that atheists make to the, their supposed atheism or their agnosticism. This is a story by Wayne Grudem. I thought it was a pretty cool story. Listen carefully. He says, several years ago, I was a passenger in a car with several friends, including a young woman who in her conversation was firmly denying that she had any inner awareness of God's existence. Shortly thereafter, the car hit a patch of ice and it spun, it spun around in a complete circle at a high speed before the car came to a rest in a large snowbank with no serious damage. This same woman could be heard distinctly calling out, Lord Jesus, please help me. The rest of us looked at her with amazement when we realized that her agnosticism had been disproven by the words of her own mouth. Yeah, there's no atheist in a foxhole. That's right. Listen, when God puts you in a position where you are literally fighting for your life and your next breath, oh, you will cry out to him. You will call out to him. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So much, so much here, right? Um, Jason, uh, Jason uh, Sides, he taught on the different proofs of God's existence. He talked about the cosmological, teleological. Please look that up in Sunday school. He did a great job. I don't want to repeat all the work that he did. But basic, basically, you know, let me just say that all of those types of proofs, which are known as the traditional proofs of the existence of God, are insufficient to prove the existence of God because they presuppose the existence of God. In order for you to say, uh, as the cosmological argument does, that the universe, everything has a cause. The universe is here, therefore the universe had a cause. Therefore, something must have caused the universe, capable of causing the universe. Therefore, it must be something like God. Right? That, that, uh, that argument already assumes so much. It assumes the laws of logic. It assumes the laws of, of, of reason and thought. And uh, it doesn't account for any of that. It assumes those things. I, I, I like to say this. The traditional proofs of the existence of God are good arguments for the believer, to encourage the believer. It's good for us, right? Because we have a worldview that makes sense. We have a worldview where logic makes sense and reason makes sense and existence makes sense and all of these things make sense. Um, the teleological argument is another great argument for believers to say, if you, look at, uh, if you look at the world, it exhibits incredible design. I mean, look at the sun. It's hot today, right? But I tell you what, you get the sun five degrees closer to the earth and it's too hot for human life to exist. So somebody hung the sun in the precise location, right? So that we don't freeze and we don't burn. So who must have done, who designed this? It must have been God. You know? And we say, well, of course, this encourages me so much. 
I mean, I was encouraged by the teleological argument recently. I saw a whole documentary on the universe, and uh, one, um, one, one creationist said this. I thought it was fascinating. Planet Earth is the only Earth, is the only planet, excuse me, in any known galaxy. You know how many galaxies there are? I don't know either. Millions, billions, who knows? Our planet is the only planet, listen to this, where observation of the universe is possible. In other words, if we, if we put you in a little capsule, right, and we flung you to Mars from here, and let's say you just arrived safely, <laughs> and you got out, you couldn't see anything. The atmosphere is too hostile for you to observe anything outside of that planet. So is Venus, so is Mercury, so is Jupiter. You go to any planet, observation is not possible. And guess what? Our planet is the only planet that has observers, as far as we know, right? Well, then again, there is a Mars rover now on Mars, crawling around Mars, right? But isn't that fascinating? That makes a lot of sense to me as a Christian. That certainly supports my faith. But I wouldn't use that to prove the existence of God, right? Because there are logical ways that you can argue against the teleological argument. But you can't argue against the Word of God. You can't argue against God's authority. And um, so all of these arguments to me are convincing for a Christian to support his and encourage his faith but not to prove the existence of God. If we're using these arguments to try to prove the existence of God, we are not believing in the word of God, that they already know his existence. We're just here to tell them, look, this, was, this is what happens to you when you deny the God that made you. I'm not here to try to convince you to become a theist. You're already a theist. Let's fight on that front. You know what I mean? And that your life right now is just evidence that you are in rebellion to God's word. And this is what's going to happen to you if you continue in that rebellion, you know. Oh, I love talking about it. You guys can tell, right? I love talking about this. I hope you're excited because I am too. Any last questions or comments or statements? No? No? All right. Let's pray and we'll go to worship. <clears throat> Father, Lord, again, we thank you that we have such a sure word of prophecy, Lord, and we're grateful, Father, that we can um, know truth. The truth can set us free. So many people today, Lord, are in bondage to lies, in bondage to a relativistic, autonomous worldview where they can't know anything for certain. And Lord, it breaks our heart to see people in that state of self-deception because we know that it will cost them their soul. It will cost them their very life. It will cost them eternity. And so God, we pray above everything, give us a Give us a, a commitment to reach out to those around us that we know are lost, that you've put within our grasp, that we can affect with the gospel because, after all, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so help us to uphold your word with all rigor, with all conviction. Give us conviction in this age of relativism where people don't have conviction about anything, at least not for the right reasons. Lord, Help us to be more faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.